Welcome back to the big broadcast, Coast to Coast and Border to Border. Check out our website, JiggyJaguar.com, for more information. We've got a great guest to introduce you to. Vonda Pelto is going to be with us here in just a few moments. Uh, the FBI says at any one time, 500 serial killers are roaming the United States. Check out the website, WithoutRemorseBook.com. Let's chat here a little bit about the book. Vonda, tell us about this book, WithoutRemorseBook.com. Tell me all about it. All righty. I decided at age 11 to become a psychologist, which everybody thought that was a joke. But by darn, after I divorced, had two children, I went back to school and became a psychologist. And my first job with my brand new PhD was in L.A. County Men's Jail, which is the largest jail system in the U.S., maybe even in the world. And my assignment was to see these newsworthies, not only serial killers, but anybody who was noteworthy, such as Arthur Jackson, who tried to kill the actress, Teresa Saldana, and John Holmes, the porn star, considered the king of porn back in the 80s. And I decided that this was such a great opportunity for a woman to write a book about seeing this kind of population For a woman in a jail of 5,000 male inmates, anyway, is tremendously different, but also to see serial killers. And during my time there, I saw 11 different serial killers. So I got a pretty good cross-section of what these guys are like. And I decided to write the book because I wanted people to get an inside look, some insight, not only into these inmates and serial killers, but also the impact that all of this has on the staff who works with these evil, horrible people every day. So that's kind of how I got into this thing. We've got Vonda Pelto with us today, author of Without Remorse, the story of the woman who kept Los Angeles serial killers alive. If you want to get more information on our website, check out withoutremorsebook.com. You've had various news articles printed about you, lots and lots of different things going on. This book is fascinating. Tell me about the writing process for this great book. Well, I decided the first day that I went into the jail that because it was such a unique opportunity that I would have a tape recorder in my lap, in my car, and every day when I drove home from the jail, which was about 40 minutes, I would record whatever had happened in the jail that day. So that's how I got so many of the details into the book, which is a true story. And then after I left the jail, after about three and a half years, I decided it was time to begin to write the book. And I couldn't write it at first. I would have such horribly, uh, horrible nightmares. I would dream of the hillside strangler, Ken Bianchi, chasing me and trying to kill me. I woke up in the middle of the night and I, with this horrible nightmare, thinking that he was choking me. And actually it was my cat laying across my neck. But in my dream, it was the hillside strangler trying to kill me. Wow. And something, yeah, it, you, you know, you cannot imagine what these men are like. I worked in the men's jail, so I did, I did not, uh, luckily, I'm glad I didn't actually see women inmates because I was more fearful when I went to the women's prison than the men's. The men seemed to have a modicum of respect for me being a woman. Now, they didn't mind calling me names, 
and the deputies certainly didn't mind patting me on the butt or making remarks. But the inmates, of course, were not certainly not able or would not have stepped out that far of line without being in a lot of trouble. Vonda Peltel with us today here on the broadcast. She has an amazing book. It's about serial killers. The book is called Without Remorse, and withoutremorsebook.com is the website. Tell us a little bit about, we, we talked about the book in the first segment. You were brought in because a serial killer awaiting trial committed suicide and couldn't be allowed to happen again. Tell us about this. It was interesting. Vernon Butts, one of the freeway killers, there were five men who worked together. The authorities had hoped he would testify against William Bonin. William Bonin was considered the leader of the gang, and they particularly wanted him. Before he could testify, before he even totally agreed to do that, he killed himself. He hung himself in the jail. You know, I was amazed at that, but the coroner said, yes, he did hang himself. So the AG was extremely angry about this because they thought they had lost this best opportunity to get Bonin. And so they decided that from now on, somebody, a psychologist, would see these guys to just chat with them, not do therapy, chat with them, have coffee, cookies, and keep their spirits up enough so that they would be able to complete trial and just to keep an eye on them so that if I ever saw that they were suicidal, I would send them to the hospital, which is in the jail. During my watch, none of them did try suicide, and that was my job. But it was totally bizarre. I would have these serial killers sitting in my office, and at this point, they were all in trial or had finished trial now by the time my three years were up. And so they had no problem telling me about their actual crime. When I first my first day, actually, in the jail, I saw this good-looking man standing on the telephone, making a telephone call up on the second floor of the jail. And I walked by with the deputy, and I said to the deputy, oh, who's that man on the telephone? And the deputy said, oh, that's Ken Bianchi. He was one of the hillside stranglers, he and his cousin Angelo Buono. And at that time, I was single and still young and kind of out, um, you know, on the prowl, kind of. That sounds horrible. But anyway, I was single and needy. How's that? (laughs) There is some humor in this book, I'll tell you. Anyway, I thought, man, if I had met this good-looking guy out at one of the clubs, I would have certainly danced with him and gone out with him. And then the deputy said, oh, yeah, that's Ken Bianchi, the Hillside Strangler. He and his cousin killed 10 women and and tortured. In fact, one of the women, Christine, they shot Windex into her arm in order to see what it, what it would do to her. In the book, I talk about the torture of some of these women and how they put a plastic bag over her head and then piped in gas. And when she would go unconscious, they would wait a bit and then turn off the gas so they could revive her so that they could get, again, gas her. These guys aren't like you and I. They are charming. They're sociopaths. They could sell somebody in Alaska snow. They are so charming. And people are always saying, you know, I couldn't believe my neighbor was a serial killer because they have no conscience. They have no empathy for other human beings. They see other human beings as somebody to be used with 
freeway killer, William Bonin, he and his four buddies killed 21 boys aged 12 to 19. And I asked Bill, how do you feel when you're killing a boy and the boy is, especially the 12-year-old, how does that feel when he's crying and begging and pleading, please, please let me go, I won't tell anybody. And Bill said to me with kind of a, a smirk on his face, oh, Doc, you know, um, I don't feel anything for these kids. You know, hey, I couldn't believe or I couldn't understand how somebody could be so cold. And so I was trying to understand what that would be like. And I said, well, Bill, is it like killing an animal? And he said, nah, Doc, I got more feeling for an animal. And I just, I, I think that helped me see more gain more insight into these people's minds and that they really don't have a conscience. You know, we talk about that, but they really don't. They can do anything to anybody and have no concern about the impact or effect it's going to have on that other person. Bonin was convicted, finally, I think it was 14 murders, and he was sent to San Quentin and was put to death by lethal injection back in 1996. And then Vernon Butts, the one that got me the job actually by killing himself, which was the friend of Bonin's, is dead. And then the three other Hillside Freeway killers are still two incarcerated and one in one was released. Between these five guys, they killed the 21 kids. Tell us a little bit about this handwritten letter that you've got on the website. Yeah, that's one of the, the letters that I had received from Bonin. They have very dull lives, and we became actually in the jail. They're like soapbox operas, and they are very lonely. And I still have two other of the freeway killers who are in Mule Creek Prison in California, who write to me also. In fact, they actually even call me and chat with me on the telephone because they're so lonely. And so I wanted to put out a letter, which I did on my website, just to give people some insight into how these people think. Something interesting. Everybody thinks that serial killers are all crazy. And actually, in order to be a successful serial killer... You can't be too crazy, because if your thoughts are too disordered, you'd get caught right away. And these men do not want to be caught. They want to kill as long as they can. Arthur Jackson, the one who killed Teresa Saldana, or attempted to actually, she was an actress, and he was from Scotland, came here, wanted to kill her. He had the delusion that they were soulmates and that he had to kill her so that they could be joined in heaven as doves together and that then they would spend eternity together. But the other freeway killer, the hillside strangler, the trash bag murderer, John Holmes, none of these men were psychotic. They're sociopaths, meaning they have no conscience. But they're not crazy in the term that people think they are. I'm preparing a next book, and in this next book, I'm going to work very hard on describing how these people become serial killers. 
what happens to their brain, what causes them to be this way. And I already have some speculation as to what causes a person to become a serial killer, and that's some damage to the frontal lobe, which is our impulse control, uh, childhood trauma, sexual or physical abuse, and also a diagnosis of obsessive-compulsive disorder, which drives them. The freeway killer was a truck driver, and he would ruminate all day about his next victim and what the next victim would be like, the next young boy. And he couldn't hardly wait until he got off work every evening to go out. And over the two-year period, he killed the 21 kids. He was, and they think probably that 20 years earlier, he had killed. In fact, one of his buddies told me that he had killed about 25 people, much like your serial killer that's current there now. He had killed about 40 people in all, but 20 years earlier, he had killed about 25 and buried them in the desert. Then he got bored with killing, and it was a lonely thing because he did it all by himself, and he totally stopped killing for 20 years. And then he took it up again. And I'm wondering if that's what's going on with Darren, the man you're currently dealing with back there. They like recognition. They like having their names. Bonin would keep clippings of the killings of the boys from the newspapers so that he could pull those out, reread them, and re-experience the crimes. They also like to, after they're caught, they like to talk about the crimes for the same reason. They like to see pictures of the victims, and then they relive that excitement. Serial killers oftentimes will start out with a simple murder, but then they get bored with a simple killing, and then they go into torturing, and then they devise different kinds of torture in order to get that same excitement again that they did with the initial kill. And that's certainly what the Hillside Stranglers did when they would begin then to experiment with their female victims like they did. There was another serial killer here in our area, Randy Kraft, who would kill young servicemen typically. And he got his kicks out of cutting off their genitalia and torturing them or ramming something up their rectum or you know, some other kind of thing. Another killer I talk about in the book is the Sunset Killer. He would have women down on their hands and knees. Can I say blowjob? Yes, Oops. yes, or, yes, you just okay. did. Yes. Tell us all about it, Vonda. Tell us. Go. <laughs> tell oh, us. I have to tell you, there's a bunch of stuff that in this book is very racy. It is definitely not a clinical book. And some humor, too. But anyway, while they were down on their knees, giving him a, a good blowjob, he would, you know, enjoy it for a while, and then he would kill them. After, shoot him perhaps, in the head or whatever, or just cut their throats. Then later, he would put the heads in the fridge and keep them. He had a girlfriend, and he would have the girlfriend put makeup on him, and then he would do all kind of sexual stuff with the head later on. Yeah. I don't know how you could do that, some cold head. Seems <laughs> like that would be a real turn-off, but it didn't turn him off. Yeah, apparently it didn't. Uh, we're going to do this. We're going to take another time out. When we come back, we'll keep talking. Vonda Pelto, you can get more information at her website, withoutremorsebook.com. 
Welcome back to the big broadcast. Von Lapelto with us today. Check out the website withoutremorsebook.com. Vonda, there is a lot of different things that you go into in this book. A lot of different details. You've got this handwritten letter from William Bonin on your uh, on your website. Also, tell us a little bit about Charlie Manson. You got some Charlie Manson stuff in your books. I didn't know Charlie, although in my book I do have a picture of me sitting on his bed. That was when he was in the L.A. County Men's. I have this lovely picture of me sitting there. I understand from one of the deputies who was on the detail with Manson, he was hardly ever in jail. They would move him every night or two to a different hotel or motel, and when they would prepare his food, it would always be tasted by the deputies first, you know, like a bee feeder. And they also would oversee all of the making of his food. I want to tell you a couple of fun stories. Okay, the book jump in there, jump heavy. in there. John Holmes was being strip-searched after he had returned from court along with Angelo Buono, one of the Hillside Stranglers. Now, I was raised Southern Baptist, this nice, nice girl, but I was down in that module in the jail when John Holmes was brought back. And being strip-searched, I knew he was nude, but John has this equipment that's 13 and a half inches long. And so I was very curious, and I thought, what the hell? I'm not a lady anymore after being in the men's jail, being called a bee and everything else every other day. So I walked right out and right up to John. He was standing there in all of his glory, and I thought, boy, this is real. This is not doctored in any of his movies. Later, John came into my office and said, you know, Doc, anytime you want him, he would really like to come out for a little fun. And I have to admit, you know, I was a tiny bit tempted, 13 and a half inches. And then I thought, no, 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 Vondi, you're a nice girl still, and you can't do that. Later, John was on a hunger strike and came down to my office, and he said, Doc, I'm starving. If you'll get me a Cadbury candy bar, I'll marry you. And I thought, why not? What the hell? I'm already in jail. So I got him a Cadbury candy bar, gave it to him the next day, and whenever I do a lot of speaking, and so when I do speaking, my husband often accompanies me, and I say, John Holmes proposed, but I married my husband instead, but he had to cut off four and a half inches. So <laughs> usually people kind of giggle, but... <laughs> <laughs> Vonda Pelto with us today here on the broadcast. She joins us live talking about her book, WithoutRemorseBook.com. Check that out today. Now, um, this this affected you emotionally and physically. Let's talk about that. Well, I'm certainly not that bright-eyed Southern Baptist girl anymore. I can cuss like a sailor, and I'm hell on wheels at the women's clubs, so I have to watch my language. Now, that's the light side, but it has made me extremely nervous and I'm always on alert wherever I go. When I walk to the car, I have my keys in my hand. I admonish everybody else I know to do that. I have locks on my house. I have alarm system. And I realize how much evil there really is in the world. And it has made me cynical about people, which is sad. I don't have that bright-eyed, trusting attitude that I used to have. And, of course, beginning this second book, the nightmares came back at first. 
of that horrendous atmosphere in the jail. So that's made me much more cautious. At one time, while I was still in the jail, it almost broke me, and I did attempt suicide. It was so horribly overpowering. And I was single with the two children, and I had to have a job. So I was really trapped in the jail. And I, I almost didn't come out. But as you see, I did, and I, I survived. But I always tell young women, or any woman, be careful if you're dating somebody, have your family and friends check them out. Because these guys are so utterly charming that you can easily be fooled into thinking they're good men and they're they're not. They can molest your children. They can harm you in some ways. So you've got to always be careful about whatever company you keep. We've got Bonda Pelto with us today here on the broadcast. She joins us live talking about her books. You can get more information on the website, withoutremorsebook.com. Check that out today. We were talking a little bit about John Holmes earlier. He refused to testify because he would have been killed by Nash, who did the job on those people. Tell me about this. He had set up the robbery, and Nash figured it out very quickly. And Nash told him, you take me to the other guys who did the robberies, or I will kill everybody in your address book. And he had gotten Holmes' address book. So John told me, you know, I'm between a rock and a hard place, and I would rather be in the jail where I feel safer. Well, at a later point, one of the deputies admitted that Eddie Nash, who was now also incarcerated on drug charges, had offered to pay 20000 to a deputy if they would just let him in the cell with John Holmes for a few minutes for coffee, of course, Nash said. Well, when John heard that Eddie Nash was trying to buy off a deputy so that he could get to John, John told me, I think maybe I'm safer outside of the jail than I'm inside. You really can't be protected 24 hours in the jail. There's ways that these guys can get to you. So after 110 days being held in the jail, John finally told the grand jury something. We never did know what John Holmes told the grand jury, but they did release him. He went on with his career of making porn movies, but was banned here in the U.S. because he had AIDS. However, he went to Europe and continued his career, even with AIDS, and he died in 96 of AIDS. Ultimately, Eddie Nash did confess to the Wonderland murders, where they bludgeoned four people to death and died in, I think, about three years ago. He died of a heart attack while in jail. I found John most charming. He was a flirt and he was fun and I have to admit I enjoyed talking to him much more than the trash bag murderers who were telling me about how they had chopped the heads off and the body parts off and put them in suitcases. I guess that's not strange. Another, when you work in that kind of an environment, you get a very macabre sense of humor. And so we had the joke going around among the staff about the trash bag murders. That hefty bag was coming to the jail to take endorsement from Comanchero, one of the trash bags, touting their trash bags didn't leak. And this came about because 
they had chopped these two bodies up in the Bonaventure Hotel, put them in, I guess, hefty bags, then put them in suitcases and took them out of the hotel and scattered them around the L.A. area. So we would all laugh about hefty bag coming to get the endorsement from the the trash bag murderer. In the book, I would try to vary the different chapters so there would be some lightheartedness as well as some of the horrible descriptions of these murders. I also talked the staff into having a Halloween party, which I have a picture of us, a couple of us, when we trick-or-treated the killer cells, and we would give them cigarettes and Hershey bars. When we went to Douglas Clark's cell, he came to the little window. Up on the second floor, they're all steel doors with small windows, unlike the bars you see in most movies. Anyway, he came and he had his hands underneath his head and looked at me as if my head was sitting on a platter, which reminded me of how he had cut the heads off and then given them blowjobs when they were down giving him pleasure, which was really, really awful. We've got a great guest with us today. Vonda Pelto joins us. Vonda, I appreciate you making time for us today. You're sure welcome. Well, uh, uh, I think yes. people would be surprised and enjoy the book because it's this single woman's life inter- intertwined with serial killers in a men's jail. Well, it's a great uh, book. Check out rem- withoutremorsebook.com. Thank you, oh, Vonda. Yeah, it's on it's on Amazon. Yes, it is, it is on Amazon as well. It is on Amazon. Yeah. I appreciate it. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you, Bonda. Thank you.